Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During the season of Lent, we are doing a sermon series called The Footsteps of Jesus. The goal of this series is to explore how each of the steps or stages in Jesus's ministry are aspects of our own journey as Christians that we need to mirror in our lives. I hope you enjoy. This brings us to our first scripture reading today. This is Matthew 13, 31 to 33. Jesus put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading is from Matthew 13 as well. It's another parable of Jesus. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we are doing a sermon series. I would ask you what it is, but I know most of you probably won't remember. It's the footsteps of Jesus is what it's called. And each week we are looking at the various steps or stages in Jesus's ministry. And we are asking the question, how does that particular step or stage reflect something that we should be doing in our own lives as Christians? And so the goal, of course, is to grow closer to Jesus, to God, and to understand how we can be transformed in our walk as Christians. Last week, we talked about step four in his ministry, Jesus's healings. And what we discussed is how Jesus is the model for us of how we are supposed to heal in the world. And what I talked about specifically is how Jesus went out to the poor and he healed people who could not afford healers for themselves. And so what I talked about after that was how we need to do that for the poor in our world today, that it is our responsibility to ensure that those who cannot afford good health insurance for themselves can actually get that health insurance. And so practically at the end of the sermon, what I said was, we, as we look to redo portions of our building, and this is one of the portions of our building that we're looking to redo, that we might think about and consider putting a free clinic in this building, making space for that, so that people who do not have insurance can come and get the medical treatment that they need. Now, I can't get into all of that here. If you weren't here last week, you're probably like, that's news to me. Go back, watch the sermon, or talk to people who were here so that you can understand, because it's much more context to that than what I've just given you right here. But many people were really, really enthralled with the idea. They thought it was a great idea. And so hopefully this is something we can consider. It's not a given, but it's something that we would consider as we're looking at redoing portions of our building. So today we are jumping in to step five in Jesus's ministry, his parables. Now before we dive into the parables themselves, what we just read, I'd like to define for you what is a parable. Because we don't know what that is, hard to talk about it, right? A parable is a story that is told with the explicit purpose of illustrating a moral or a spiritual lesson. The beauty of parables is that when they are told well, they can bring deep truth to the hearer. Now Jesus, he told parables all the time, right? 
I mean, all the time, didn't he? Yes, 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 he did. Okay, we're here? You with me? Okay, good. All right. So, he told parables all the time. And the parables we read this morning were specifically about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So before we can dive into the parable, we actually have to know what the kingdom of God is. Yes? Okay, so, kingdom of God. In order to understand this, you have to understand that when Jesus was alive... The greatest nation on earth was called the Roman Empire. This is the territory that the Roman Empire owned at its height. And as you can see, the Holy Land is actually part of that territory, which meant that the Jews were part of the Roman Empire. They didn't want to be part of the Roman Empire, but they were. And they longed to be their own nation where they could be independent. The problem was that they were not strong enough to fight against the Roman armies, because the Roman armies were too numerous, too well-trained, and frankly, too lethal. So their one hope, the one hope they had, was the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God represented a future state of the world where the Jews were in control of everything. And the way they imagined this future state of the world coming about was that God was going to come from heaven and join alongside the Jews with legions of angels who would be fighting against all the nations of the world and would defeat all of them. And once they were victorious, all of these defeated nations would be subsumed into one large nation that encompassed the entire earth called the kingdom of God. Now, the leader of this nation was known as the Messiah, or in Hebrew, Mashiach, and that means anointed one. The Messiah was a king who was going to rule over God's kingdom on God's behalf. So, once the kingdom of God had been established, what you have to appreciate is that heaven and earth, they believed they would be merged together as one unit. They would become one. And so, literally, heaven would come to earth, and the way that they would take control is because their God is the greatest God, they would be, that God would come down and say, the Jews are now in control of everything. Got the basic concept? Okay, now, the only other thing you have to know is that their indicator that this was about to happen was that they believed that God would send the Messiah ahead of time and the Messiah would start to collect the Jews together and begin an uprising and then God would join in and defeat everyone. That's the only other thing you have to know about this. Okay, so Jesus is telling his parables about the kingdom of God. First parable he tells that we read this morning is the parable of the mustard seed. Have you seen a mustard seed before? Okay, very, very teeny tiny, right? And then, of course, when it grows into this very large shrub. So this is what he says about that. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. In other words, the kingdom of God starts small, very, very teeny, in ways that you can barely see. Why does he use this analogy? Because Jesus' movement at this point in time is very small. When you all think of Jesus' movement, do you think of it as this big thing where all these people know about it? I mean, is that how you generally imagine it? I mean, that's how we tend to think of it, right? But that's actually not the reality of what it was. At the time he's telling this parable, he's got his disciples. He's known among the peasants because of his healings and his teachings, but it's not that big of a movement. And so you have to think about it. He's saying, look, the kingdom of God, it starts small because my movement is small, but it'll grow. It'll be different than you realize. And because it's not what you're expecting, trust me, it can still happen. It can still be this way. So he's saying it starts small, but eventually our movement will grow. And at the end of that movement, just like 
the birds of the air who make their nests in the mustard shrub, you will be able to make your home in the kingdom of God. Yes, we on the same page? All right. Parable of the yeast, same basic concept, same basic idea. Let's take a look at it real quick. Kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until it was leavened. Okay, what is yeast? Yeast is a fungus. And when you put it in with bread dough, what happens? It rises up, right? All right, if you've ever baked bread, you know, do you need very much yeast to make it rise? No, just a little dab, right? Works its way through the whole batch. So Jesus is comparing his movement to yeast. It may seem inconsequential now, but eventually his movement's going to work its way into everything to create the kingdom of God. All right, what do these stories tell us, these parables? They tell us a little bit about how Jesus was thinking of the kingdom of God, and they tell us how the people around him were thinking about the kingdom of God. When we're thinking about the kingdom... A lot of people at the time were waiting for the kingdom to come. But the truth is, many people had given up hope that God was going to help them at all. They felt that the kingdom of God was the thing of myths and fables. It was an impossible reality. Sure, the scribes and the rabbis, they talked about the coming of God's kingdom all the time. But they had come to believe, many of them, that the kingdom of God was nothing more than a fairy tale. Yeah, I know. I know. Yes. <laughs> It was a fairy tale. Right on. She's into fairy tales right now. <laughs> so, here's the thing. 2,000 years later, we're reading these parables, right? And I think with 2,000 years of hindsight, shouldn't we sit here and say, were the doubters right? I mean, God didn't intervene. God didn't merge heaven with earth. Uh, God didn't save the Jewish people at least not in the way they were expecting. And here we have all of these parables where Jesus is talking about God's kingdom, and we have to answer for that, do we not? So, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, since the kingdom of God is not here, what exactly was he talking about all those thousands of years ago? Was Jesus mistaken? Was he wrong? Was he lying? Or are we mistaken about how we are understanding God's kingdom and what it's supposed to be. Now, to answer this question for you, I want to tell you a story. And this is a story that all of you in here have probably heard at some point or another. You're familiar with this story, at least the broad strokes of it. But I want to get into the details of this story, because the details matter. And when you understand the details of the story, you'll understand how it answers this question that we're posing this morning. So, human flight has been a dream of humans for tens of thousands of years. And prior to the 20th century, the closest that humans could get to achieving flight was through artists like Leonardo da Vinci or George Cayley coming up with inventions in their minds of flying machines, machines that would allow humans to get into the air. But as inventive as these designs were, the fact is that humans believed that flight was pretty much impossible. It was a pipe dream that was never going to become a reality. But this all changed in 1896, when two brothers from Dayton, Ohio, who owned a bicycle shop, decided that they wanted to try their hand at solving the mystery of flight. What caught the interest of Wilbur 
in Orville Wright was their bicycle shop. What made them want to invest and crack the code of machine-driven flight was thinking about how people balanced on a bicycle. Because when you ride a bicycle, in order to go where you want to go, you have to shift and balance, right? To move where you want to be. And so they wondered in their minds, well, if a pilot was flying a machine, how would they have to shift and balance in order to make the machine turn left and right? This is where they started with the idea. So in 1896, all that was known about flight at that time was based on birds. So you could get all of these books that would talk about bird wings. And so they got all these books and they started reading them. And by 1899, Wilbur had devised a very simple system that allowed him to twist or warp the wings of a biplane kite. And this biplane kite, he could make it with this system as he would warp the wings that it could roll left and it could roll right. Now, this was something new. They hadn't been able to do that up to this point. So they were sufficiently impressed with their experiment. They decided that what they wanted to do was to take this kite and make it into a much larger version that used the same basic principles, but it could hold the weight of a man and act as a glider. Now, if they were going to make this glider work, they knew that they needed a place with a lot of wind. Because if they were going to actually learn how to crack the code of flying, they needed to learn how to fly in the first place. So they wrote the United States Weather Bureau, and they asked them, what are some of the windiest places in America? Not just one gust of wind, but sustained wind over and over again. And so they got a whole list of places, and the place that they chose that was at the top of the list was the Outer Banks of North Carolina in a place called Kill Devil Hills. Now, they pack up their glider, and they go down to Kill Devil Hills. Now, my family has vacationed in the Outer Banks every year since I was a child. I even take my boys to the Outer Banks every year. Uh, and I can tell you that today, if you've ever been down there, there's tens of thousands of houses in that area. Very, very nice. Highly recommend if you can go on vacation there. But when the Wright brothers went down there in 1900, there were 50 houses in that area. Most of the people who lived down there were fishermen. It was a very, very harsh place to live because not very much could grow because there was basically sand and wind everywhere. But that's exactly why they wanted to be there because if they got in that glider and they crashed into the ground, they'd be crashing into soft sand, right? As opposed to breaking their legs on the ground. So in September of 1900, they get out to Kill Devil Hills. And they get their glider all put together. And first, they start using it as a kite. Now, this is what it looked like. This is the actual picture of the glider that they were using at that point in time. And so they started working on it, just trying to get the control system down. And these guys, they were meticulous about everything that they did. They wanted to make sure if they were going to move to the next step in the process, they knew exactly what they were doing. So for a month, they worked on just as a kite, just getting it the way they wanted it to be. Then after a month, they decided, okay, we feel good enough, we're ready. So they pull this glider up to the dunes in Kill Devil Hills. And Wilbur, he gets inside, and Orville, he gets on the outside, and a local teenager, always good to have local teenagers around, <laughs> would launch 
Wilbur off of the dune. Now at first, he went about 100 feet in the glider. And he gets back up, they pull the thing back up, and they do it again, and it goes about 100 feet. And he keeps trying, but every time he goes, he learns a little bit more how to use the control system. And eventually, he's starting to go 200, 300, 400 feet. It speeds upwards of 30 miles per hour. He takes dozens of trips over and over and over again, and eventually, the brothers, they are satisfied with what they've learned. They've really taken in a lot of information. They say, okay, we're packing up our stuff. We're going back to Dayton. So they go back to Dayton, and over the winter of 1901, they decide they're going to make a bigger glider, one that will allow them to go further. So they go in, they're working on this, and by the summer of 1901, they had completed this glider. And what they didn't know at the time is that this was actually the biggest glider that had ever been created by human beings in the history of the world up to this point. So they pack it all up. And they ship it down. And this was going to be a big moment for them because if they could get this to work, they knew that they could make it into actual machine-driven flight. So they get down there, July of 1901. They assemble the glider. They drag the thing up to the dunes. And again, Wilbur gets inside. Orville's on the other side. Got the teenager, right? And they shoot it off the edge. And immediately, he crashes into the ground. They think, oh, well... You know, we've got a little out of practice. We'll do it again. So they drag it back up. Again, they shoot Wilbur off. He nosedives into the ground again. Again and again, it nosedives over and over. They cannot get it to take flight. A year ago, they were going 400 feet with their glider. Now, they can't get it to do anything. What was the difference? Well, the second glider they created, they based it off of reams of data from scientific literature about aeronautics. So they had gone in and they had read all this literature and they thought, well, these scientists, they know better than we do. So we're going to take all of that and we'll put it into our glider. Well, what they discovered very quickly is that these scientists knew absolutely nothing about flight. And that, in fact, all of that data had been made up. So they realized this isn't going to work, so they packed up their stuff and went back up to Dayton. And it's at this point that they did something truly ingenious, something that would be copied for generations after them. They designed a small wind tunnel in their attic. Now, this is an actual copy of the wind tunnel. Now, what they would do with this wind tunnel is they would test various types of wing shapes and material to see how it responded to the flow of air. They were meticulous. They recorded every single nuance, and by the summer of 1902, they had achieved something really remarkable. They had put together a brand new glider, and this glider was based on hundreds and hundreds of hours of focused experimentation. It was based solely on their research. So they packed it up, they shipped it down to Kill Devil Hills. And when they went down there, they assembled the glider together, in September of 1902. And this time, they went back to first principles. They thought, you know what? Rather than just get in the thing and start flying, let's use it as a kite. So they get it up in the air, and this is them working on it initially. They're trying to just see how it's working as a kite. And they wanted to see that it could respond to the flow of air. And once they felt good enough about that, they took it out to the dunes, and they started going off. And this time, both brothers 
decided that they were going to take flights. And they had done something quite ingenious when they created the second version of this, as you can see, is that as they had spent time in the wind tunnel, what they had figured out was that if they could change the rear rudder to actually be flexible to move, that they could control where they were going. So they take it up to the dunes, and they start going off. And it works as it was expected to do so. And they were immediately taking flights of distances further than 600 feet. But beyond this, they could float. They could not just glide, but they could soar. They could rise. They could fall and dive. And they could circle and land with confidence. In other words, what they had done is that in 1902, they had actually solved the problem of flight. They had learned how to fly. And this is what most people don't realize, is that at this point in time, they actually knew how to achieve flight. They knew all the basics. They had done the very thing that nobody in the history of humanity had been able to do up until this point. So all they had left was to create a motor and a propeller. That's it, right? That's all you got to do. And then they would have achieved flight. So they pack everything up. Again, they go back to Dayton. And this time, the first thing they do is they write to Henry Ford. And they ask Ford, can you help create a motor for us for our plane? And they gave him some specifications. They said that it had to be four cylinders, eight horsepower, and weigh no more than 200 pounds. But the problem that they faced is that Ford never wrote them back. So they said, okay, I guess we're going to have to make the motor ourselves. Which is kind of crazy, right? Because it's like, if I went up to you guys and I was like, hey, I need you to make me a motor, right? You would stare at me blankly and say, uh, I'm not an engineer, I can't do that, right? And up to this point, what did they make? They made what? Bicycles. <laughs> but they were not to be deterred. So they got onto their metal lathe and drill press that they made bicycle parts with, and they designed a motor. And what they came up with was absolutely amazing. They designed a motor. This is, this is the specs that they came up with. Now, the motor was four cylinders, had 16 horsepower, and weighed 152 pounds. They had done better than even Henry Ford could do with that, which is absolutely amazing to me that they could do that, that they could make a motor that was more powerful and weighed less than what they needed it to. The last thing they had to do was make a propeller. But you have to realize that this actually, everything that they had accomplished would be the most difficult thing that they had to do. Because up until that point, not much was really known about the physics of air propulsion because nobody had done it. So what they came up with were these two propellers that were eight and a half feet tall and they were made of three spruce lamentations that they had glued together around a metal post and then they shaped the whole thing by hand. And so once they put that on and they felt that it worked, they said, okay, we got the whole plane together. So they took it all, they crated it up, the motor, the propellers, the frame, and the parts, all weighing about 675 pounds, and they shipped it down to Kill Devil Hills. Now, up until this point, what you have to appreciate is that the brothers had not been able to assemble the entire plane together at one time because it was too big. They didn't have enough room to do it in Dayton. 
So they were going to have to assemble it for the first time down in Kill Devil Hills. So they get down there. All the stuff arrives in October of 1903. And they start working tirelessly day and night to get it together. And on November 30th, they were on the cusp of being finished with it when they were testing one of the propeller blades and it caused a crack in the shaft. Now, they didn't have the ability to fix that crack there. So Orville, he immediately leaves and heads back up to Dayton in order to fix the crack. And he works on it, he gets it together, and then he comes back down 11 days later and they reinstall the part as quickly as they possibly can. Then on December 14th, they decided it was time. We're going to give it a shot. So they flipped a coin to see who would go first. The brothers were very egalitarian to make sure who would go, right? So they flip a coin. Wilbur wins the coin toss. So they take it out to the track, and they get it going down the track. But Wilbur, he pulls too hard on the rudder, and it causes the plane to go up and down and hit the ground, and it actually causes some minor damage to the plane. So they look at it and they say, you know what, we really do need to fix this. So they drag the flyer all the way back to their airplane hangar. It takes them three days to fix it. And then on December 17th, 1903, they decide it's time. We're going to do it again. But this time, it was Orville's turn. So they take it out <laughs> to the track. And they start the propellers. And at exactly 10.35 AM, Orville he lets go of the rope that was restraining the flyer. And the flyer begins to creep forward along the track. And as it goes, Wilbur starts to run alongside it. And as he's running, the flyer, as if by magic, starts to lift into the air. And then at that moment, flight. Now that flight, it would last only 12 seconds <laughs> and go a distance of 120 feet. But it was real, true, genuine flight. Over the next hour and a half, they would take turns at the controls and they would get better each time with the last flight lasting 59 seconds. going a distance of half a mile. Now, why have I told you this story? Besides the fact that it makes me cry. <laughs> I tell you this story because it's the perfect analogy for God's kingdom. When these brothers started working on solving the problem of flight, people told them that it was impossible. And in fact, many people at that time believed that human flight was literally physically impossible, that it could not be done. And with every roadblock that stood in their way, people came up to them and they said, see, I told you that it couldn't be done. But they kept at it, right? They were undeterred. 
And they believed that if they kept working at it, if they kept doing the things that they needed to do, if they kept working at the problems, that this could be solved. And so, when I think about this, it makes me think about God's kingdom. Because when you read about God's kingdom in the Gospels, when you read about Jesus saying God's going to come to earth and create God's kingdom, it sounds impossible, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't it sound somewhat impossible for it to happen? He talked about it 2,000 years ago. Nothing's occurred, right? And the truth is, is that it is impossible if you're going to sit back and wait for it to happen on its own. But when you come to understand that God creates the kingdom through us, that God comes through us and through our hands and three, through your hands and feet and creates the kingdom here on earth, then it becomes a possibility. It's like sitting here and the Wright brothers sitting back and saying, well, I hope someday we can fly. And they didn't do anything to solve the problem. When you serve the least of our brothers and sisters, when you give them food, water, shelter, medicine, clothing, love, you help to create the kingdom of God on earth. And this is why with the last two parables he tells, the last two parables he says that the kingdom of God is like a fine pearl or like a treasure that is buried in a field and you sell everything you have to go and get that field when you understand how valuable the kingdom of God is and what it can do for the world, you're willing to invest everything you have to bring it about. And for the naysayers, the doubters who sit there and tell us that the kingdom of God is not possible, that humans are too selfish and too sinful and we can never bring it about on our own, I say nonsense. Like the people who doubted flight and doubted that it could be done. If you doubt the kingdom of God and you sit back and you do nothing, you're right, it won't happen. But if we have the focus, if we have the focus of the Wright brothers and we put everything we have into the creation of God's kingdom, if that becomes the sole focus of our lives, then it becomes a possibility in the same way that they made the focus of their lives solving the problem of flight. It can happen. And so my prayer for you today is that you might be inspired by Jesus' parables. May they be an inspiration to you that the kingdom of God is possible. May they be an inspiration to you to set aside your doubts that it cannot be done, that God can work through you. May you have the focus of the Wright brothers. And may you be inspired to believe that we can do this if we put the kingdom of God front and center and make it the focus of everything we do in our lives. God creates the kingdom through us. Make no mistake about that. May your hands and feet be part of the solution that brings us one step closer to taking flight. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.